proposition from Reverend George Junkin, Part B, from Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 3. The third subordinate proposition with an inference. The New Testament recognizes some masters as good men, true and faithful believers. Therefore, the relation of master and slave may exist consistently with Christian character and profession. Proof 1. Matthew chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant, Doulos, shall be healed. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Here is a slaveholder whose faith stands above suspicion. But we have been told that every man who is guilty of slaveholding, if he die without repenting of this sin, will go to hell. How differently the Savior and some of his disciples judge. Proof 2. By Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, we learn that the epistle is addressed to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Jesus Christ. And by chapter 6 verse 9, we learn that among these faithful brethren are masters. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master, Christ, also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, etc. Thus, slaveholders are recognized as faithful believers, and no order is given to cease to be slaveholders. Proof 3, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren. But rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. Here the slaves, douloi, are commanded to submit, because their masters are believers, faithful and beloved brethren, partakers of the grace of our Lord. Proof 4. Philemon, verse 5. Paul, addressing this slaveholder, says he had heard of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus, and toward all saints. So we might cite all the cases where masters are commanded to do their duties, for they are, in every instance, addressed as Christian masters, and the same is true of the slaves. Clearly, then, the inference follows that this relation is not inconsistent with Christian character and profession. 4. The fourth subordinate proposition. The New Testament recognizes the existence of slavery. 5. The fifth subordinate proposition. The New Testament prescribes the duties of servants to their masters, and of masters to their servants, enjoining obedience to the one, and kind treatment from the other. 
Meanwhile, no injunction is laid upon masters to liberate their slaves, nor is there any hint given to slaves to run away from their masters. All this I shall prove by plain and direct scriptures, and then shall deduce some legitimate conclusions. Proof 1. Titus chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. Exhort servants, doulos, to be obedient unto their own masters, despotais, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. It is important to remark that this, and most of the subsequent proofs, are found in the midst of contexts where the leading social relations of life are dwelt upon, and their duties pointed out. Here the aged men and the aged women, the young women and the young men, are exhorted. In some of the following cases, husbands and wives, parents and children, magistrates and subjects, are mentioned, and just among them, servants and masters, recognizing it as an existing relation. On this passage, note, 1. The servants, doulos, are exhorted to be obedient to their own masters, despotais, despots, absolute masters. It is the strongest term the Greek language knows to express absolute and arbitrary power. 2. That this obedience should be cheerful and hearty, not with an ill grace, a surly and dissatisfied and hesitating manner. 3. They are commanded not to steal their master's property, but to feel an interest in his welfare and to be faithful in looking after it. How different in all three respects this from the teachings of modern anti-slavery doctors. They teach that slaves may and ought to disobey their masters, to run off, to steal their masters or any person's horse, saddle, bridle, food, clothing, anything that may be necessary to facilitate their escape. Such morality may be found in the abolition journals of the day. 4. The glory of God is promoted by the cheerful obedience and faithful conduct of Christian slaves. Such conduct adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. Now we put it to our brethren, whether this course of conduct, in Christian slaves, is not much more likely to win their masters, and all others, to embrace the doctrine from which it springs than the stealing and running off which they recommend. Are those who engage in running Negroes to Canada, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things? We put it to your consciences, brethren. Proof 2 Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 and chapter 4 verse 1 Servants, obey in all things, your masters according to the flesh, not with eye-service, as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God, 
and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. 1. Here strict obedience is enjoined to masters according to the flesh, that is, masters in regard to worldly things. 2. This obedience is not merely outward, but inward, sincerely and truly rendered in which he shows how obedience in carnal things is consistent with spiritual obedience to the Lord. In obeying your earthly masters in all things, lawful, that is, you obey your heavenly master too. Ye serve the Lord Christ. 3. The servant, doulos, the slave that does wrong, that withholds due service from his master, that purloins, or is in any way unfaithful, shall be punished for his wrongdoing. If he obey the counsels of modern abolitionists, God the Redeemer will judge him. 4. As injustice is forbidden to the servants, so injustice is forbidden to the masters. Wrong is prohibited on both sides. For wrong the master will be punished as well as the slave. But the question arises, what is just and equal? Our brethren will say that it means, among other things, liberty. But this text does not say so, nor does any other. On the contrary, it is implied that the relation continues. The masters are masters still and the slaves are slaves still, and it is to the existing relation the whole context applies. If the relation is annihilated, the duties of obedience, here enjoined, can no longer exist. This, then, is mere subterfuge. What is just and equal? Undoubtedly, kind treatment, comfortable food and raiment, and instruction in all the blessed doctrines of the Bible. These things, good, believing masters do, and in so doing, obey God, and give more than is commonly given to hired servants. We are often told that they ought to set them free and pay them wages. Well, perhaps they ought to free them. But this will depend upon circumstances. As to paying wages, it is notorious, and the abolitionists have shown it a hundred times, that the slaves are often paid higher wages than the free blacks or whites, using the term wages in the strict sense of political economy. Says Professor Vethek, page 33, quote, We must be careful not to confound the real wages of the laborers with his money wages, the latter, as has been before stated, are only instrumental in procuring the former. The laborer who receives money for his services exchanges it again 
for the necessaries and comforts of life, both of a material and immaterial nature, which he is enabled by means of it to obtain, and the money is only transitory in his possession. Close quote. The real wages of labor are food, clothing, house room, education, all the necessaries and comforts of life. But now it is proverbial that many slaves devour their masters. They consume more than they produce. They receive more wages than they earn. They get more than is just and equal. And this constitutes an argument not on moral or religious grounds, but simply on the ground of political economy. Again, the whole system, which I think entirely unanswerable. It has been demonstrated ten thousand times that slave labor is, upon the whole, the dearest, and cannot compete with free labor. Would you, Mr. Moderator, or any of these brethren, take a common laborer with a family, and obligate yourself to feed, clothe, house, and educate them, as laborers and Christians, at your own cost, making yourself and your heirs liable for them, for the space of forty years? I mean all moral consideration aside, and receiving the question as a mere dollar and cent matter, would you? Where is the man that would do it? Still, the deficient production results from the system, and combined with a law before mentioned, constitutes the physical necessity whereby the Creator provides for removing the evils of oppressive bondage. But we may not run out in this direction. Proof 3, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 Servants, be subject to your masters, with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. This is part of a context where the relative duties of social life are enjoined, magistrates and subjects, servants and masters, husbands and wives, are addressed. 1. The term servant is different. It is oiketes, a house-servant. But that it implies here a slave is evident from the treatment to which they were exposed. They suffered wrongly, were buffeted, endured grief, and are commanded to submit and bear it patiently, out of conscience towards God. Now this is inconceivable in regard to hired servants, or any temporary engagement. 2. The subjection enjoined is to despotais, absolute masters. 3. The term by which he expresses the subjugation is also wrong. It means the absolute rigid subordination of military government, where not the least hesitancy or delay or demurring is tolerated. 4. The fear with which they are to submit also shows the relation of master and slave. The whole drift of the passage is plain and easy. It enforces the duty of submission in all things not sinful before God, upon the slaves, even in extreme cases of harsh and cruel treatment, 
and that from the consideration that the God whom they serve will be glorified by it, and the religion they profess will be commended to the hearts of all men. Could Peter, moved by the Holy Ghost, have done all this, if the very relation of master and slave was, in itself, and independently of all contingent abuses, a sinful relation? Proof 4. Philemon was a slaveholder, at least, if owning one slave makes a man a slaveholder. Onesimus, his slave, had fallen under the influence of bad counsel, whether the dictate of his own heart, or of some ancient anti-slavery partisan. He ran off from his master, who resided at Colossae, a city in the interior of Asia Minor. See Colossians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Tychicus have I sent unto you with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. This may show a special reason why Paul, in this epistle to the Colossians, which was undoubtedly carried by Tychicus and Onesimus, presses, as we have seen, the duties of servants to their masters, according to the flesh. The letter was carried by a runaway slave, now returned to his sound mind, and hereby commanded to obey his master. This runaway found himself at Rome, and came to hear Paul preach in his chains, in his own hired house, and was, through grace, converted unto God, after which Paul sent him back to his master. Let us note the particulars. 1. The apostle recognizes Philemon's right to Onesimus's service. Verses 13 and 14. Whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. Paul lived in his own hired house, yet he was in chains, and needed some person to do his errands, lay in and cook his food, wash his clothes, etc., etc. These kind of services Philemon had done, or caused to be done, for the apostle, when at Colossae, as is most likely from this verse and the twenty-second, where he requests him to prepare me also a lodging. But however much Paul needed Onesimus, and however assured he felt, that did Philemon, his master, know the situation of his beloved friend, the apostle, he would have most cheerfully consented to let Onesimus stay and attend upon him. Yet could he not consent to keep him without his master's expressed will. 2. Onesimus was a slave. Paul urges Philemon to receive him, not now as a doulos, but above a doulos, a brother beloved, especially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Not now, ukete, not any longer, as a doulos. Here is the distinct implication that, heretofore, he had been treated as a slave, a doulos, 
but now no longer is he to be so treated. This alludes to the Levitical law already explained, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 through 42. The Hebrew is to treat his brother Hebrew, now his ebed, his doulos, his slave, not like slaves are commonly treated, with rigor, but as sukirs, hired men are usually treated with kindness and lenity. Now, says Paul, this doulos is a brother, and our law requires such to be kindly treated, and I know that you will do even more than I say. Verse 21. 3. In this last expression, there is a hint at emancipation. It is highly probable that Philemon not only treated him kindly, but set him free, and assisted him to some farther education, and thus enabled him to enter the ministry. Such things have been done, and are continually doing in our own day, in regard to indented apprentices, and even to slaves. Several talent and efficient preachers, now in Liberia, were thus manumitted. But now this very thing, which I understand to be admitted by some of our anti-slavery brethren, contains the whole for which I am here contending, viz. that slavery existed, and obedience was commanded in the New Testament. 4. Paul does not command Philemon to liberate Onesimus. He does not even command him to receive him and treat him kindly. But he does say he might do this latter. He has authority to enjoin, to command. Verse 8. Yet he prefers to put himself in the position of an equal with Philemon, and entreat him. From this it has been argued, rather assumed, that he had power to order Philemon to emancipate him, but forbore to exercise it. This is wholly gratuitous, groundless, and false. The power which, in verse 8, he asserts he has, he turns into an entreaty, and it is that the master would receive his slave and treat him no longer as a slave, but according to the law, with lenity, as a brother. 5. Another point illustrated here is the pilfering character of runaway slaves. Onesimus had taken the precaution, in our day given as advice by some abolitionists, to supply his pockets from his master's stores before he left him. Verse 18. If he have wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account etc. So punctiliously regardful is he of the master's rights, that he renders himself liable, as a surety, for all the property the slave may have stolen from his master. Again, Mr. Moderator, let me call your attention to the strong contrast between the morality of the New Testament and that of modern abolitionism. This encourages the slave to disobey, to steal, to run off. That commands him to return, to be honest, to be obedient. But a recent discovery has been made in the laboratory of Greek criticism. 
it is now ascertained that onesimus was merely the younger brother of philemon that he did not like the vigilant and close treatment of his older brother who was his legal guardian that he went off and paul sent him back now mr moderator you must not smile at this it is indeed ludicrous but then laughable as the thing is in itself we must not always treat things with that contempt which their merits demand this criticism is advanced in serious earnest and we must bite in our lips and seem to be grave in our reply well on what is this new theory founded why simply on the phrase in the flesh verse sixteen it is asserted that onesimus was a brother of philemon both in the flesh and in the lord ah but does the text say this or does it say that onesimus was beloved both in the flesh that is in regard to civil and temporal affairs and in the lord that is in regard to spiritual things it needs not greek spectacles to see that there is a comparison drawn between paul and philemon in reference to the measure or degree of attached feeling towards onesimus paul says that onesimus is now a brother to whom to philemon and to paul too though he calls him his son but he is a beloved brother beloved to whom to me yes and unto thee but in what degree is he beloved to them respectively why especially but especially what is it especially beloved or is it especially a brother which word does the adverb especially qualify beloved or brother most assuredly it cannot qualify brother but it can and does qualify beloved he is beloved in a high degree especially to me but in a higher degree how much more to thee beloved both in the flesh and in the lord clearly if the thing were possible that the adverb especially and the adverbial phrase how much more could qualify brother then we would have the ludicrous idea presented of onesimus being a brother germane to paul and to philemon both but that he was more a brother to philemon than to paul there are two other objections to this novel criticism it requires proof that the older brother was a master and the younger his slave doulos we doubt much whether any sane man will undertake to prove this historically the other is that the phrase in the flesh is the same in its meaning with according to the flesh which we have seen used in the epistle to the colossians written at the same time with that to philemon and sent by the same messengers the sense is not equivocal in the flesh or according to the flesh is simply as to worldly affairs and in the spirit or in the lord or 
according to the spirit, as to spiritual affairs. Proof 5, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Servants, be obedient unto them who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, etc. Here again, all the points are sustained. The relation exists. The duties of servants, slaves, are prescribed in preemptory language. The distinction is noted between the master, as to the flesh, as to worldly affairs, and Christ, the spiritual master, and the general consistency of their service to both. And the reward of faithfulness is held out as a motive. The masters are commanded to do the same things, that is, to carry out the same spirit of good will towards them, in gentle and kind treatment, which the servants are commanded to practice, and with an eye to their own accountability to God. Not one word can here be found encouraging servants to steal a horse and run away. Not one hint to masters about the sin of slavery and the duty of repenting of it and no command to manumit their slaves. Proof 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railing, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. We are to bear in mind that these are among the instructions given by an aged and experienced minister, under the spirit of inspiration, to a youth in the service. When we connect with this the very brief space covered by the whole epistle, we must conclude that Paul thought the subject of slavery a delicate and important one, that he could afford it so much space. Let us carefully analyze the context. 1. The persons spoken to are slaves, douloi, and the correlate term is despotoi, masters, absolute in authority over them. 2. But the spirit of inspiration, foreseeing the mischief which misguided zeal would occasion in the premises, and the twisting and wrenching of the scripture, which would attend its efforts, 
has appended a phrase which cuts off the possibility of plausible cavil. These douloi are under the yoke, a phrase which undoubtedly signifies bondage, deep and degraded slavery. This phrase does not again occur in the New Testament. The term yoke, however, does occur five times. Rather, the Greek word zugoi. Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, it is used to signify that perpetual, perfect, absolute, unmurmuring, and everlasting subjection, under which God's redeemed are laid to serve him. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In Acts chapter 15, verse 10, it signifies the slavery into which some labored to bring the Gentile converts to the ceremonial law. Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, the same is called a yoke of bondage. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 5, the word is correctly translated, a pair of balances. Let us inquire how the same Greek word is used in the Septuagint, the old Greek translation of the Old Testament. Its meaning may assist us here. If it is there a symbol of bondage, a type of slavery, it creates a strong presumption that it is so here also. It is used some fifteen times as the translation of a word that signifies a pair of balances, mazonaim, as in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 36, Job chapter 6 verse 2 and chapter 31 verse 6, Psalm 62 verse 9, Proverbs chapter 11 verse 1, etc. Again, it is used for ol, a word that means the instrument by which oxen, or beasts of burden draw. This is the natural and proper sense, as in Numbers chapter 19 verse 2. Bring thee a red heifer, upon which never came yoke. So Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 3, 1 Samuel chapter 6 verses 7 through 10. Again, it is used in the figurative sense as the symbol of oppressive bondage. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 4 and chapter 10 verse 27. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. His burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. And chapter 14 verse 25, the same, and chapter 47 verse 6. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. So Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 20, and chapter 5 verse 5, and chapter 27 verses 8, 11, and 12, and chapter 28 verses 2, 4, 11, and 14, and chapter 30 verse 8, Lamentations chapter 3 verse 27, Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 27. Again, Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6, the Greek word is used 
for one which means the bows of the yoke, the bands, or whatever fastens the yoke on the neck, and thus is very suitable to express the idea of bondage. Thus it is clear that to be under the yoke is to be in a state of slavery. To have the yoke broken off is to be made free. This will be admitted by all abolitionists. For they use Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6 very constantly in their prayers, and, I suppose, in their arguments. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? End of Proposition from Rev. George Junkin, Part B.